0: Well, um, thank you to our, our church leaders, and well, really not the leaders, the deacons, but thank you to the congregation for just that um, expression of gratitude. Uh, that that was uh, unexpected, undeserved, uh, but but very much appreciated. And, and praise God for that. So so thank you to those of you who conspired to do that. Um, so um, well. If you would, you can take your Bibles and open them to uh, Matthew 18 this morning. Matthew 18. As you're turning there, uh, I want to pose a question to consider. Why, Why do people reject Christianity? Why do people reject Christianity? Why do people say, no, thank you, it's not for me? And I'm sure you can come up with a lot of reasons. There, there are many, many reasons that I have heard, certainly. Uh, but perhaps one of the most common answers is because of hypocrisy, because the church is full of hypocrites. I'm sure you have heard that before. Uh, sometimes maybe it goes along these lines. Christians are judgmental when it comes to sin in the world, but But Christians ignore sin in the church. Christians are hypocrites. One pastor, Mark Dever, made this wise observation once. He said, a church must choose between hypocrisy or church discipline. A church must choose between hypocrisy or church discipline. You cannot have neither. It's possible to have both. There are churches that have church discipline and hypocrisy, but it's impossible not to have one or the other. So, this morning we are, <clears throat> excuse me, finishing up a little bit of a mini series on the local church with this topic of church discipline. And, and our, our sermon title, which I'm borrowing from a Nine Marks journal article or journal on this topic, is, is this. The title is Church Discipline Medicine for the Body medicine for the body. And, and perhaps you've never heard of this term, church discipline, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly flesh this out more later on, but church discipline is, is really um, the, the corrective accountability in a church, corrective accountability in the church when there is sin in the church, even to the point of calling out that sin and, and at times having to put an unrepentant sinner out of the church, an unrepentant, hypocritical person out of the church and saying, we can no longer affirm you as a believer, as a part of this body of Christ. Now, I know that sounds perhaps um, uh, shocking and and perhaps difficult, and we're going to walk through this, but that's why that pastor said a church has to choose between either having hypocrisy or church discipline. You have to have one or the other. And why are we talking about this this morning? Are we we about to church discipline somebody next week and we just got to get our ducks in a row? No, 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 no. Uh, that, that would be the wrong time to talk about this. Uh, it's best to address uh, the, the matter of church discipline when it's nowhere on the horizon. So just want to put that up front. If you're worried about, you know, am I, am I, am I under a church discipline? Am I, Someone can talk to me? No, no, no. This is, this is wanting to talk about this in a peacetime, so to speak, so that we can talk about this biblically and not emotionally. And, and I admit, church discipline is not a common topic, um, many churches don 't practice church discipline. Uh, some churches practice it, but do so poorly and so oftentimes, many Christians have many questions and there 's lots of confusion about this matter of church discipline but But we as a church must be obedient to scripture, which includes exercising church discipline and it 's it 's hard to obey that which we don 't know or that which we misunderstand and so so my hope this morning is to cover this topic of church discipline from the scriptures. And not only that, when, when you and I, when we as a church understand church discipline well and properly and clearly, it, it really brings a lot of things together. It really brings concepts about the church. What is the church together? It brings together concepts about membership, about what it means even to be a Christian, even what the gospel is. It, it really ties a lot of these things together. And so this morning, as we walk through this topic of church discipline, I want to briefly walk through four questions and two points. It'll be brief at some of these points, but four questions and then two points at the end. So the first question is this, what is church discipline? What is church discipline? And I'm trying to put just a brief answer behind each of these questions, these four questions. So what is church discipline? Answer, accountability. Accountability. And so I want you to look in your Bibles at Matthew 18. This is Jesus speaking here, and he, he talks about this situation when, when there is somebody who sins against you. So Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, it says this, "'If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault.'" Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what Jesus lays out here is this, this process of discipline. If It says here, if a brother sins against you. And, and sometimes people ask, oh, is this, does this mean it, it's only about sin when it's personally, personally against you? And no, uh, certainly that's how Jesus draws it out here. But there are many other passages that talk about discipline, about correcting one another when there is sin. And so really this process is helpfully laid out here. But this applies to sin that's done personally against you. But this is also applicable to sin in general, moral failure, but also doctrinal error. So what is church discipline? It is this process of accountability, of accountability. You see, when, when someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to trust in Jesus, when we hear the gospel and we believe in the gospel, we are, we are told that we are to repent and believe. We are to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are also to let go of our sin. We will never be perfect on this side of heaven. We will never be fully free from sin on this side of heaven. But we are to make war, not peace with our sin. We are no longer to be at ease with our sin, at home with our sin. We are to turn from our sin, to repent of it and hold on to Christ. And that is to describe the believer's life. Our lives are one of Continual faith and continual repentance. The moment we stop believing, we are no longer believers. The moment we stop repenting, we are no longer Christians. A Christian's life is marked not by perfection, but by continual, humble repentance. I remember I read recently a pastor saying this. uh, We don't need to be ashamed when we repent. We should be ashamed when we sin. The point of a believer's life is to continue to Repent, this is the month of October. Uh, some, some would know this also as Reformation Month uh, because Martin Luther in 1517 nailed the 95 theses to the church door in in, in Wittenberg, Germany uh, on October 31st, sparking the Protestant Reformation. And the first of those 95 theses to recover the gospel of grace that that the, the Roman Catholic Church had begun to lose, the first of his 95 theses was that the, the Christian life has been marked By repentance all of life is repentance and so here in Matthew 18 Jesus says if a brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've gained your brother in other words if he repents you've gained your brother this is this process of accountability of accountability you go and show them his fault and if he listens if he repents you've won your brother that's where it ends praise God praise God But if this person refuses to listen, it says there, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so now you go with two or three together and and, and you say to this brother or this sister, I know you love Jesus. You, You profess faith in Christ, but you're living in this sin. You're living in this unrepentant sin. Out of love for you, we urge you, we beg you to repent. And it says there, if they listen to you, You've won your brother, but verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, to these two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a ta- Gentile and a tax collector. What he's saying here is, if he doesn't listen to the two or three, then you tell it to the church and the whole church goes and begs this brother or this sister to repent we, we love you. We want you to repent, to turn from this sin, this sin that would do you harm spiritually both now and eternally. And if they listen, great, that's where it stops. But if not, then it says you treat him as a Gentile or tax collector, meaning that you can no longer consider this person as a brother or sister in the faith. You put them outside the church. You put them outside the church. And by the way, you know, the reason why I read all the way to verse 20, maybe you're wondering, wait, whoa, 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 why is, why is the pastor bringing in that verse about small prayer meetings? Um, that's not a verse about small prayer meetings. That's a verse about church discipline. That's the, the reason why it says if any of you agree on anything on earth, if, any, if two or three of you agree about anything on earth, there I am in their midst because that's the two or three witnesses. That's the two or three witnesses saying this brother or this sister has not repented and will not repent, refuses even to repent repent. And so again here, what is church discipline? It is this this process of accountability. This process of accountability. Someone who's ultimately unrepentant, it says that we are to put them out of the church as an unbeliever. And the corollary of this is that membership is an ongoing affirmation that someone is a Christian. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When someone becomes a member of this church, when someone gets baptized we baptize them. That's an affirmation that we, we believe they have a credible profession of faith. When they join the church as a member and they're an ongoing member in the church, there's a sense in which we're saying that we are, as a church, affirming one another's profession of faith. Meaningful membership gives you assurance. Meaningful membership means that there is accountability even to the point of discipline, and that gives you assurance. Membership without accountability Uh, Following Christ without accountability is ultimately superficial and hollow. It It doesn't mean anything. And the issue here is repentance. You don't discipline somebody who's simply just weak or struggling. Somebody who confesses sin and says, I want to fight against it, help me. There's no discipline for that person. Discipline is not for the weak or the struggling. It is for the person who is stubbornly and defiantly unrepentant. I see what the word of God says. I see that what I'm doing is sin, but I will not repent. And and I just want you to, to listen to some of these other verses. Sometimes people say, well, it's just Matthew 18. No, I, I want you to just listen to Romans Romans 16, verse 17. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. It says to avoid those who are teaching false things. Avoid those who are causing division. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3. I want you to see this one in your Bible, 2 Thessalonians a little farther ahead in the new testament 2thessalonians chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 it says there if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother there's not this vengeful hatred it's not an enemy And and by the way, here, there's that word ashamed. It's not that you shame the person per se, but you want them to feel the sting of their own sin. You want them to feel the shame of their choices. It's not a vindictive shaming of this person, but it says that you you take note of this person who refuses to obey God, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Warn him as someone that you love, that you care for. And a, a word picture I like to use for this is is that if we, as a, as a church family, love one another, we are, we are committing to love one another to the very end. We are committing to love one another even when it hurts. And so if, if you were to, to take a vacation to the Grand Canyon, and maybe you go with a group that you know from church, and all of a sudden your friend starts sprinting towards the edge of the cliff. And you're like, this makes no sense. There are signs, warning." Steep fall, imminent death. But you see your friend sprinting towards the edge. You don't look over and say, well, got to let him be. You, you do you. Who am I to say? No, you, you stand there and say, friend, brother, sister, stop. You're running towards death. You're running towards your own death. This is foolish. This is unwise. You're breaking the, the command of the signs there. Don't do it. Stop. They don't listen. So then you bring one or two friends with you. So then two or three of you yelling out, brother, sister, stop running. Stop running. They don't listen. You tell the whole group, we're all going to yell as loud as we can. Stop because we love that person to just shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's up to him. It's up to her. That's anything but love. That's apathy. That's apathy. That's saying, I don't care about the eternal state of others. So church discipline is about accountability. It's about accountability. So that's what church discipline is. Uh, Question number two, what is the goal? What is the goal of church discipline? And this is really important here. The goal of church discipline, two words here, restoration and protection. What is the goal, restoration and protection? I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 3. This is a, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 5. And, and this is a bit of an intense passage, but, but it's an important one where we see Paul addressing the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth um, was, was a, a church with some issues. Uh, Corinth was sort of like uh, the Las Vegas of that day. Full of sexual sin, full of all kinds of immorality. And Paul writes to this church in, in Corinth, and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, his, his stepmom, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him be removed from among you. Put him outside the church. Sometimes you hear the term excommunicate. You're putting them out of the church, you are excluding them from communion, from fellowship. Verse 3, for though, I am ab- or, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and the power of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? Here's the purpose. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Put him outside the church, even deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that he would feel the sting of his sin. He would see the, the emptiness of his ways, that he would feel the coldness from the church, not the warm embrace and the tolerance of his sin, but the coldness so that he would know he is in the wrong. Why? So that, here's the purpose, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, again, I don't mean a coldness as in this turning of your back and a not caring, but this sense of, I can no longer consider you a brother or sister in the faith if you continue down this road, if you continue in the path of unrepentance. You're to deliver this man. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal is restoration. In Matthew 18, all along, the goal is not, let's get his name before the church. Let's get her name before the church. No, the goal is always to win your brother over, to win your sister over, the friend that's running towards the edge of the cliff. The goal is that they would stop. The goal is that they would stop. You want your brother or your sister who's caught in sin to be restored. You want to see them walking in the joy of the Lord. Underlying all of this, there has to be this understanding that holiness brings joy and sin brings death. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Holiness brings joy. Sin brings death, destruction, and misery in this life. So when we say to someone, Well, they're in sin, but you know, I love them too much to say anything. No, you don't love them enough. Because holiness brings joy, sin brings misery and ultimately death. The goal is restoration. The goal is restoration. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Uh, you're both like, do you know that a little leaven, a little sin spreads, the influence spreads like yeast through a lump of dough? Verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, this is really interesting. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you'd have to go out of the world. He's not talking about that. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, friends, I understand these words sound very perhaps strange if you've never read these before. If you've never heard church discipline taught before, these will fall upon your ears as being strange, and yet I want you to see this in your own Bibles. This is not my idea. This is the Lord's. The Lord who loves the church. The Lord who loves the lost. The Lord who loves sinners. He puts this in. Why? Because the goal is restoration. Far too often the church is known for condemning sin in the world. Now, should we speak the truth? Yes. Make no mistake about that. But we ought to be far more zealous about holiness in the church. We must be much more zealous for repentance in the church than out there. Here, this is the assembly of those who name the name of Christ, those who claim to believe in Christ and repent of their sins. Out there, they don't know yet. We're not trying to reform their behavior before they believe. They need to believe first. Paul says, I'm not talking about the the sexually immoral of this world, but, but those inside the church. Paul has this zeal For for the church to be holy, why? Because God longs for his people to be holy. In 1 Peter 1, you are to be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. So what's the goal of church discipline? It is restoration, that that erring brother, that erring sister, that wandering believer may be brought to restoration. John Calvin, in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, he he comments on that verse I read earlier, 2 Thessalonians 3.15. John Calvin says this, excommunication does not tend to drive men from the Lord's flock, but rather to bring them back when wandering and going astray. The point is to bring them back. So the purpose of discipline is to restore, to lovingly pursue and to restore. But not only that, the purpose of church discipline is to glorify God by protecting the purity and unity of the church. When the church is holy, the church has a powerful witness. Not holiness mixed with arrogance and self-righteousness, but a holiness mingled with humility convicts the world, but also draws the world. Church discipline protects the purity of the church because the church represents Christ. And when we are walking in sin unrepentantly, we misrepresent Christ to the world. Why would they want anything to do with Jesus if Jesus is okay with hypocrites walking in stubborn unrepentance? Uh, The purpose of church discipline is to protect the unity of the church. You saw that earlier in Romans 16, 17, to to avoid those who are causing division. Those who are stirring up slander. Those who are making accusations. Avoid such a person who is causing division in the church. Even if you want to listen, or you can turn to Titus chapter 3. This is all throughout the scriptures. The importance of unity, and even to the point of discipline. Titus three verses ten to eleven. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. There's almost this expedited, this expedited command. If it's one person in their own sin, there's patience. Oh, there's patience. There's always grace. There's always patience. But if there's someone who's stirring up division in the church, it says, warn him once, warn him twice, and then have nothing to do with him. Because God values the unity of the church as being precious and being easily broken. So the purpose of church discipline too, to restore the erring center, but also to protect the purity and unity of the church. Also to protect individual Believers, to protect individual believers. Turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I know we're doing a lot of survey this morning. I want you to see all that the scriptures have to say about this. 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 to 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, as for those leaders who persist in sin, in other words, they're unrepentant, Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. When when a leader is unrepentant, they are to be rebuked. Why? So the rest may fear. The rest may fear their own sin. The rest may fear the deceptiveness of sin, the hardening effect and the deadening effect of my heart of sin. In a previous ministry, I, as an elder there, I had to be involved in various discipline cases. I can still remember one where the pastor and I, we had to, after it was, it was months, even years, working with this man patiently, and he was unrepentant. And we went to his house to deliver a letter in writing to explain to him why we were taking the next step to bring his name to the church. We dragged our feet. At least I did. No one. No one wants to do this. No one. No one relishes in this. But we had committed to him as elders of that flock to love him enough to confront him, to love him enough to say, "Friend, stop running to the cliff." And when we announced his name to the church, church members were humbled. We're grieved, we're moved to prayer for this man. They're also moved to humility to examine himself. We know this man. We've known him for years. How could this be going on in his life? Lord, is there the seed of sin in my own heart? Lord, am I capable of just such a sin? Lord, may it never be. Lord, keep me close. Lord, help me to repent. When a church takes sin seriously to the point even of discipline, it causes the church to fear our own sin. It protects the individual believers in the church. It deters them from sin. Ultimately, church discipline protects the gospel. It protects the gospel. Because the gospel says, yes, God sent his son Jesus to come into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst, of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for sin. Praise God. Praise God, but those who are forgiven are those who trust in Jesus and turn from their sin. You cannot be married to Christ unless you've been divorced from your sin. And when we say that you can hold on to your sin and hold on to Jesus, we lie about the gospel. Hypocrisy dishonors God, hypocrisy tarnishes the church. Hypocrisy endangers the individual caught in hypocritical sin, but hypocrisy also hinders the unbelieving world from believing. The unbelieving world says, I want nothing to do with that God. Or they say, if that's all it takes to sign my name, to to raise my hand and then live however I want, then I'm in. And all the while, they're not in. If a church refuses to correct sin and call sinners to repentance, then the line between the world and the church is blurred. And that means the church ceases to be the church. And that means believers will be confused and the world will be confused. A church that does not practice church discipline is like a a person with no immune system. There's no immune system to deal with foreign pathogens. There's no immune system to help your body recover from infection. A church that is unwilling to deal with sin is a church that has made peace with hypocrisy, a church that has succumbed to cancer. A church that doesn't discipline in order to be welcoming, in order to be loving, in order to be tolerant to unrepentant sinners ultimately becomes unloving and unwelcoming to God. If a church tolerates sin, then that church is intolerant of holiness and even intolerant of the Holy One, God himself. And again, this is not about visitors coming in, unbelievers coming in. If you are not a Christian today, what a day to be here. I want to talk to you later about some other things. This this is not something you need to be worried about. We're not not asking everybody to come in. All right, here's a questionnaire of any sins that you might have so we can bring them up front later. That's not it. If you're visiting, we're glad you're here. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. The, The issue is not sinners. The issue is unrepentant professing believers who would name the name of Christ but tarnish the reputation of Christ. So what is the process of church discipline? We already walked through it in Matthew 18. The third question, the third question, what is the process? So first, what is it? It's accountability. What's the goal? Restoration and protection. Number three, what is the process of church discipline? Patience. Patience. You saw in Matthew 18, those four steps, uh, that's not like a bing, bing, boom. Like, well, Friday, I talked to him. Saturday, I brought two or three uh, Sunday, uh, we, we told the church, and then we put him out at the end of service. No, no. This is a patient process because the goal, the goal is restoration. The goal is restoration. You want to see your sister restored. You want to see your brother restored. You're trying to keep this as small as possible. It's not, well, let me tell the whole church first and have us all go. No, it's one-on-one. You're trying to keep the circle small because you're trying to protect the honor and name and reputation of this brother or sister. You're keeping it small. You're keeping it private because you're trying to do everything you can to bring them to repentance before it has to get any bigger. So the process is patient. The process is patient. It is private first. For the sake of time, I'm going to move to question number four. What is the motivation for church discipline? What is the motivation? Love. I have already kind of mentioned this earlier, but to say it again, the motive is love. Consider for a moment the loving discipline of our heavenly Father. In Hebrews 12, You can turn there or you can listen. In Hebrews 12, all the way towards the end of our New Testament, it says there in verses 5 to 7, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. This is a quote from Proverbs. For the Lord, listen, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline, it says, that you have come to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God disciplines the one whom he loves. Can I I just put this out there? If If you are able to walk in sin repeatedly, continually, With no repentance, no conviction, no remorse, with no discipline. You're not getting away with something. It means you might not belong to the Lord. If there is a believer who is in sin, they will repent or they will be disciplined by the Lord. Because the Lord loves you too much to let you go. Because it's not just you standing, yelling at your friend not to run over the cliff. It's the Lord himself who does not want to see you go over the edge. The Lord disciplines out of love and we follow the example of our heavenly father. Like I mentioned earlier, sin is always harmful. Sin is always destructive. So the most cruel thing you can do is to allow someone to remain in their sin. It is cruel, it is unloving to let someone remain in their sin unaddressed. And it's the most loving thing to call them to repent. We must do so with gentleness, with patience, love, with care. This isn't a license to be harsh. This isn't a license to just crack people over the head. We do so with gentleness. We speak the truth in love, but we must speak the truth. We must call brothers and sisters who are in sin to repent. And, and let me make sure this is clear, because we live in a day where, man, the idea of church hurt, the idea of, of abuse, of abusive leadership, abusive of authority, and there are examples of that all across the news, but if you can stand in God's word and call a brother or sister lovingly to repent, it is not abuse. Calling someone to repent of their sin is love and kindness to them. You know the, the proverb Proverbs 20, uh, Proverbs 27, verse six. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Will you love enough? Will you love enough? The motive is love. When a doctor sees a patient who has just had a scan for cancer and it comes back positive, you see that couple sitting there, anxious, worried, and the doctor has in his hands the results from the scan and he knows it's positive for cancer. But he knows if he tells that patient, you have cancer, they will be crushed, they will be grieved, they'll be broken. And so this doctor says to himself, I am too loving. I won't tell him. I won't tell her. I'll just tell him, you're fine. That stomach ache you have is no big deal. Get some sleep, drink some vitamin C, I water, and, and take some vitamin C, and you'll be fine. And of course, the couple goes away relieved, overjoyed. That doctor has not shown love. That doctor has not shown love. Yes, it would be hard to hear. Yes, it would be painful. Yes, it would break them. But the doctor must tell them the truth and then say, "And here's what we can do about it. Here's what we can do about it. You see, sometimes this this idea of church discipline comes off as unloving, but we have to have a biblical understanding of love. I, I so appreciate what this one pastor, Sam Alberry, says. Pastor Sam Albury says this, unconditional affirmation and unconditional love are not the same thing. To demand the former, to demand unconditional affirmation is to actually exclude the latter, unconditional love. If you love someone, you can't affirm them when they're running towards the cliff. You don't say, run faster, run harder, you got it. That's not love. You're affirming them, but that's not love. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional affirmation. We must understand this. But when when church discipline has run its course, and again, the, the goal, the goal is restoration. The goal is repentance. The goal is, is all this. But if that person does not repent, it says you put them outside the church. It says to have nothing to do with this person. Treat them as a tax collector or Gentile. It doesn't mean that you... you, you Give them mean looks. <laughs> Doesn't mean you do that, but it means that you can no longer treat them as a brother or sister. Your conversations with them are marked by, I love you, will you repent? I love you, will you repent? I love you, will you come back to Christ? And in God's kindness, that the history of the church, when churches practice church discipline, not only does it protect the purity of the church, not only does it protect uh, the, the gospel and the reputation of Christ but you will see stories of redemption where the one who is disciplined comes back, sometimes weeks, months, years later, and says, I was wrong. And I knew it the whole time, and I hated your discipline. I hated that you held me accountable, but I knew the whole time you were right. I've been running for years, and now I've come back. I want to confess before you I was in sin. You see stories of restoration in churches like that, and you see even Paul. Paul would talk about this in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5, he says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. This discipline by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to affirm, to reaffirm your love for him. When there's repentance, there's full embrace, full embrace and rejoicing. Rejoicing. Friend, there's a danger of false professions. Do you understand that? False professions of faith. As as a pastor, what keeps me up at night often is when I think about those who profess to know Christ, but I have concerns they do not know him. Allowing people to walk in their false profession, to have a false assurance, is dangerous to that individual. It's dangerous to the church and it's dangerous to the world because the church now is filled with unbelievers who are walking in sin and the world thinks that hypocrisy is okay. And that individual thinks they'll be walking into heaven and they'll be met with the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. Will we love one another enough to say, I don't want that to be anyone in our midst? Two points briefly. Those are the four questions. Two points extremely briefly. Objections to church discipline. That's fine in American churches, but we're a Chinese church. We're an honor-shame society. Friend, this is not an American thing. This is a biblical thing. And by the way, the Jewish culture of that day was certainly an honor-shame society. The issue is not culture. The issue is obedience. Are we more loving than God? Are we more wise than God? The church is God's idea, not ours we would be foolish to set aside his instructions. Uh, but Trenway, but, we, can't, we can't do this. The church is full of sinners. No, no, the church is full of repentant sinners. This should be a very safe place for repentant sinners. But this should be uncomfortable for an unrepentant sinner. Trenway, uh, you can't tell people how to live. We're not, but, but we can't muzzle God when he says how we should live. This is unloving. No, no. If you understand sin and what is at stake, eternal hell, church discipline is loving. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It is sad, but it is loving. You don't do this with harshness, but you do this with gentleness, but you do it with courage. Last point, how do we apply church discipline? So that that was objections to church discipline. Point number two, applying church discipline applying church discipline and just very briefly pursue holiness pursue holiness pursue Christ likeness commit to put your sin to death personally now interpersonally let me let me throw this out there are you easy to correct Are you easy to correct? Do people find it easy to come to you and say, friend, I see an area in your life. And do you rise up with indignation and accusations back? Or do you say, thank you, because I know you love me enough to tell me? Are you easy to correct? Are you humble enough that you are approachable for correction? And are you willing to correct others? Will you be courageous enough to correct others when necessary? Some of you maybe need to be held back. You are you just love to rebuke people. Perhaps you need to hold back. But well, my guess is that most of us in this room would be terrified to bring up sin to somebody else. Can I encourage you to have love for God, love for the church, love for the lost who are confused by this, and love for that individual who is perhaps walking towards destruction. Will you be courageous enough to say something? Friend, church discipline is not a fun thing to talk about, but it is, it is vital for the health of a church. And it ties together, what does it mean to be a member? Membership is meaningful because it means something to be in this body. We need churches that are both compassionate and patient, but also courageous to do what the Lord says. Charles Spurgeon said this about the church. The church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that any who are feeling low from this, feeling conviction from this, that they would repent I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be a church that takes holiness seriously but does so with patience and grace, with a motive of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.